Well, good morning, church. Just say hi to one more person. We're going to dive in this morning. As Brian said, we are so glad that you are here with us this morning. My name is DJ. I'm the associate minister here at the summit. Um, and yeah, I'll just echo uh, what Brian said. We are uh, extremely privileged every week to come together as a family of grace, believing and becoming the gospel. I appreciate your flexibility. I know it's been two weeks since we've been able to gather. We had no power um, last week. And I will be honest just to share a little bit of my own personal journey. You know, Sunday morning, I'm sitting there at 5 a.m. My lovely wife was like, hey, I'll go check to see if the power's on. And as the loving husband, I let her. I'm a great guy, guys. And I confess, in that moment, there was part of me that was like, please don't let it be fixed. Please don't let it be fixed. And then I had this moment later that day that was extremely convicting. And so I decided, I said, I'm going to read James again, which was a terrible decision. And I think all week, God has just been convicting me in that, that, that I truly do want us all to come to a place where we do look at the body of Christ as our family of grace. And that if we have a moment like we had last Sunday, I pray for myself, and, and I hope maybe for you too, it's disappointing when we don't get to gather and when we don't get to be together. And so I use that as a little bit of a confession moment for me, but also an appreciation for the flexibility of, of our church and, and for you guys and hope that, this, um, that it did provide an opportunity to rest and, and maybe um, have some, some unique family time together, a time with neighbors or, or people that were in need after the storms um, and all that, which also means for you today, I've got two weeks of pent-up preaching energy <laughs> that I'm about to unleash on you in this moment. Yeah. So, get ready. Uh, we have been in the book of James. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in James chapter 2. You can also follow along on the summitstl.info for all of those of you that are still looking to join a group. Just put that on pause for a second. They'll still be there uh, after the sermon's over. Go ahead and jump over to the notes part of the website, uh, and you can see where we're going to be today. But as a reminder, throughout this series, and we are going to conclude our series this morning, we've been building on two foundational pillars that are really uh, the basis for what James looks at as Christianity on street level. And as we've said throughout this whole thing, if you fail to believe one of these two pillars, then when you look at taking the theological thinking of Christianity and putting into street-level practice, it's going to seem impossible for you. And so those two pillars, just as a reminder, pillar number one is that we have a Savior who is not separated from our suffering. If you remember all the way back week one, we looked at the beginning of James where he says, consider it pure joy when you face trials of various kinds, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and steadfastness and faith. You'll be complete, lacking nothing, all of those things. And in that, what he is reminding us of is that Jesus is relating to us in our suffering, that what we talked about was that he has anticipated every struggle, every trial, every challenge that you will ever go through. And he's not separated from that, saying, hey, you got it, keep going, just keep going, just keep going. No, he actually walks alongside of us. He's with us 
throughout that whole process. And then pillar number two, we have a Savior who equips us along the way through the power of the Holy Spirit. The big message of James is going to require transformation of us. If we truly want to live the life that Jesus has called us to live, it's going to require transformation. That transformation doesn't come from us doing better, trying harder, knowing more. It comes from the Spirit of God that is at work in your life. It is the work of the Spirit transforming you into the image of Christ. And so as we come to the end of our journey here, I have been feeling more and more each week and more convicted each week as this message of this letter continues to get into my business, continues to confront me in my messiness. And I don't believe that our passage today is going to be any different. And so before we dive into that, let's pray. Awesome God, we come to you this morning. We ask with humility and submission, coming just as we are, what we have not, please give us. What we know not, please teach us. And what we are not, please make us. In your powerful name, amen. There's a, a commonality in the lives, I believe, of all of us in this room and one that I would actually probably argue is shared by every Jesus follower across the world. And my guess is you've probably wrestled with this question maybe at some point in your journey. And that is this, that we all want to believe that we have true faith. We all want to believe that we have what the Bible talks about as true faith. And I don't know if this is true for you, but it is for me. It can be challenging to admit publicly at times that we struggle with our faith, that we have moments of doubt, that we have moments of anger, that we have moments of confusion and all of these things. And I believe most likely the case for all of us, it's that in those struggles is when you most wrestle with this question of what is the nature of true faith? Because here's what happens in those moments. We tend to get caught in this comparison trap with people. We look at the lives of people around us. We look at people that we may follow on social media or, or the books that we read, and we think, oh, man, they have true faith. They know what they're talking about. And at times that makes us struggle with our own faith and are we really doing and believing the things that we are supposed to do and believe. And it's here at the end of James chapter 2 that I believe is the climax of James's entire letter when we enter into this discussion of what Christianity is all about. What is the nature of true faith? Years ago, I was on a mission trip to Memphis, Tennessee. I was a, an intern at a church in, in Jefferson City, and we took a, a group of high schoolers to, to Memphis. And while we were there, we put on a, a VBS for uh, a church that was in the neighborhood, and we had all these kids in the neighborhood. And I don't remember much about this trip, but I remember one moment, and I can't forget it. 
And we're there with all these kids, and there was a volunteer from the church, one of the children's ministers at the church there. And at some point, I, do, I think she just did this out of the blue, which is cool. She started leading us all in a rousing rendition of If You're Happy and You Know It. <laughs> Clap your hands. Thank you, right? And so we're all there. There's probably like 100 kids, and then we've got a group of like 50 kids, and then there's all these volunteers. And so we're all, oh, yeah, if you're happy, you know it. Clap your hands. You know, blah, blah, blah. And then she Jesus juked me out of nowhere. She went into this own chorus of hers that says, if you're saved and you know it, clap your hands. And I'm like, and we keep going, if you're saved and you know it, clap your hands. If you're saved and you know it, and your life surely shows it. If you're saved and you know it, clap your hands. And in that moment, I'm like, well, I'm not going to not clap. <laughs> and it created, actually, this really cool conversations with the students that we took, because they're like, how do I know? How do I know what this true saving faith is? And I think in that, there's this interesting topic that I think on some level, maybe a lot of us struggle with. How do we know what true saving faith really is? And now we've said all along, James is Christianity on street level. A lot of people love this book because of its immense practicality. And if you're a deep theological, theology-loving thinker, I appreciate that you've put up with this series for the last four weeks. And if you think that today in our passage you're going to get your heavy dose of a theological sermon, I'm sorry. Because here's what's going to happen in this passage. The beauty of the last half of James chapter 2 is that, yes, it is intensely theological. But I would argue it is also one of the most challenging practical parts of the entire letter of James. Which is beautiful that it takes something so theological and puts it forth in a way that is immensely practical for us to wrestle with today. So let's look at the beginning of this passage, James chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 14. And James says this, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now depending on your background, where you've come from, where you are theologically, you may look at this passage and you may think, wait a second, this sounds like a contradiction to the entire gospel. And I understand that tension because what makes Scripture both beautiful and also complicated is that there is a danger that we run into when we take certain parts of Scripture and we read them into other parts of Scripture because it seems like they're talking about the same thing, when in all actuality they're addressing two different things. So let's call out the tension. Let me attempt to clear up some of this confusion that you may be facing. A lot of people, when they read this passage, they go to what Paul talks about. So Paul in Galatians chapter 5, he says this. He says, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, and what he's talking, circumcision is representing the Old Testament law, he says Christ will be of no advantage to you. 
I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You're severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ, neither circumcision or uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. So what's Paul doing here? Paul in Galatians, and he talks about it again in, in Romans, as he's writing to the church, and he's addressing a very particular theology that is teaching people that in order to achieve acceptance or justification, in order to be in a right relationship with God, you have to continue to keep the Old Testament law. And Paul... What he's trying to do is he's trying to say to people, no, he's trying to remind them it is impossible to justify yourselves by your own performance. It is impossible on your merit, on your effort, to find a right relationship with God. That essentially God will not love you any more than he already does or any less than he already does based on what you do. And he's talking about something very different than what James is talking about here. Because Paul is looking at uh, this, this, this thought of Jewish legalism that is still trying to penetrate its way into the body of Christ. And James is pressing on his readers that we need life transformation that should arise based on what Jesus has already done. Let me, let me say it a different way. Paul is addressing legalism, which can be a problem in the church, right? James is addressing complacency. James is addressing this idea that as Christians, we tend to become too comfortable that we stop doing and engaging with the transformation that the Holy Spirit wants to do in us. So they're addressing two very different things. Things. James insists that the man who already claims to stand in a right relationship with God through faith should continue to be in the process of being transformed from the inside out by the work of the Holy Spirit. But here's the cool thing, and this is what makes Scripture incredibly beautiful as well, is that Paul and James both understand a core issue that we as believers deal with. And they both understand the complex nature of the human heart. That you and I, as followers of Jesus, our heart has a tendency to revert back to unhealthy practices. And some of those practices tend to look like, well, we can do more. We can be better. If we do all the right things, then God for sure will love us more. That's what Paul's talking about. Or we can go to this other side of saying, you know what? It doesn't matter what I do. Jesus loves me. Which Paul has things to say about this too. And I found it interesting actually that both talk about something that Ezekiel in the Old Testament references. Ezekiel chapter 36 says this. He says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes 
and be careful to obey my rules. So what God is promising there, even back in the Old Testament, he says, hey, I'm going to do something in you that is going to make you radically different from everybody else. I'm going to set you apart because of who I am. I'm going to take away that old heart of stone that you have, that heart that is so drawn to legalism or so drawn to complacency. I'm going to take it away, and I'm going to put in you a new heart of my flesh that's run by my spirit that will transform you from the inside out. Let me say it this way. When you want to know what a true saving faith is, I would say a true saving faith is something that always results in a new heart. It's really raining. I hear you guys talking about it, so I feel like I have to talk about it. Like, let's just all acknowledge it together. So here's the thing. Here's where things get a little complicated for us. This new heart, this new spirit is now motivated by a new set of desires, right? It lives by a whole new set of values. It loves with a whole new type of love. It is completely transformed. But my question for all of us in this moment is, have you bought into that? Because I think both Paul and James, when they talk about the same thing, what they're talking about is we try, and we talked about this two weeks ago, we try to live in this two separate world mentality that we can at some times operate out of this new heart that God gives us, and at some times we still can operate under this heart that we have. And what both of them are saying is, no, you cannot. God, when he grabs a hold of your life, when you come to the point when you realize the depths of your depravity and your need for a savior, the reaction that that causes is for you in complete surrender and submission to say, God, remove the old self from me in its entirety. Fill me with this new heart. Help me to live by this new set of values, to see the world like you see the world, to love people like you love people. And Jesus said it, and James echoes it here, that the evidence then of that kind of transformation is a deeper and purer love for God and for people. That we love God more as our knowledge increases of him, we love him more. As our knowledge of ourselves because of who God is increases, we love God more. And as our knowledge and love for God increases, our love for people should increase all the more. So James says, just as Jesus didn't separate the first and second commandment, right? When he's asked, hey, what's, what's the greatest commandment? What does Jesus say? Love God, and the second is like it, love people. And in that, he's showing that those two are actually inseparable, and James, in the same way, is saying faith and work, when it's done in a true and saving nature, is inseparable. You cannot split them apart. And so he doesn't end there. He then provides us with three arguments that help us illustrate the point of this new and transformed heart that he's calling us to, so I want to take a moment this morning and just look at each of these three individually. The first thing he talks about is what I'm calling the demon argument. 
And so the framework or, or the catalyst, if you will, that James is going to present each of these arguments is found in verse 18. So he says this, James 2, verse 18, he says, But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from works and I will show you my faith by my works. And so he's taking that argument, he's taking that statement, and with very great intentional pastoral care, he's going to offer up three arguments that are very provocative in nature. And church, I I just want to say for a moment, it's good for us as believers to be provoked at times by Scripture. Because that's where we're confronted with this old heart that we have and with this new heart that Jesus wants to grow in us. And so James is doing that here, and he starts right off the bat with this demon argument because the epicenter of our faith, the very foundation of the biblical narrative, centers on what James is about to say. Look what he says in verse 19. He says, you believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. And I love how that works because I can, I can see James doing it. He says, hey, you guys, you guys believe that, that there is one God. Way to go. And they're like, yeah, we do believe that. Sweet. And he says, well, demons believe that too. And they're terrified about it. And so he's, he's hitting them in this, in this very powerful but pastoral way that, yes, Everything that we read about in Scripture, everything that we talk about on Sunday morning centers on this truth that there is one God above all that is in complete control. And the hope that we sing about, the hope that we talk about and live in is all found because of that one truth that there is but one God. And the reason why that James starts here is because he's not taking away the importance of that statement. Right? You should believe that. We, as followers of Jesus, must believe there is one God. But he is being very clear here that good theology, even if it is accurate, good theology is not an end to itself. In this example... The demons had a good theology that there is one God. So good theology for us, church, is not an end in itself. Good theology, what you believe about God, what you believe about Jesus, what you believe we are as a result of the work of Christ, cannot end there. It has to lead you into something greater. Let me say it this way. Theology that does not produce the fruit of the Spirit in us, even if it's good theology, is bad theology. And church, I think some of us are comfortable living there. We know the right things. We claim the right things but there's still a barrier between our our minds and our hearts that we haven't allowed this connection to happen to where the Spirit can really unleash what we know through our lives that it then leads us into something greater. To use a 
a very uh, simple example. There's a reason why people don't put Jesus fish on their car anymore. You guys know exactly what I'm talking about. I had a Jesus fish on my car for about 60 days. This was when I was living in Atlanta. If you've ever been in Atlanta traffic, it's insane. It is the worst. Amen. Whoever said that. I had to take that Jesus fish off real quick. Why? Because there's a disconnect in me. That something happens for me when I leave here. And when I get into a frustrating situation, when I get into traffic, when somebody isn't behaving like I expect them to behave, there's a disconnect in me that my theology, even though it's good theology, is not transforming me from the inside out. Come on! And church, we struggle with this. Why? Because we are complacent. James says, you believe there's one God. Keep in mind, the demons believe that. Brings up the second argument. It's called the Abraham argument. So James chapter 2, verse 20 through 22, he says this. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? And so again, I love, I love what he's doing here because he's like, let me, let me show you. Let me show you the logic here. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was complete by his works. What James wants us to see here is that when we look at Abraham, and we look at Abraham's faith, when, when God calls him, Abraham... If you don't know the story, he's, he's longing for a son. He's longing for an heir. He's longing for just God to just work through him to unleash the next generation. And so finally it comes along that he's given a son. And what does God ask him to do? He says, I need you to offer up your son to me. And James brings this up because what he's trying to get us to remember is that Abraham's faith, extended to his whole life. It extended to the very things in his life that he held the most dear, including his son. And church, I believe that we start living in this dangerous realm of false faith when we start putting aspects of our lives into a box that we don't allow God to touch. Because if you think about it, how many times do we put those types of conditions, maybe not, maybe not verbally, but if we really search our hearts and the motives of our hearts and what's going on within us, how many times do we give God conditions? Hey, God, I'll, I'll give it all to you except for my family, God. Don't touch my family. Or God, I'll, I'll, I'll give it to you except just can we leave my finances alone? I'm just not sure that I want to give that part of my life to you. God, I'll come in on Sunday mornings and I'll lift my hands and I'll sing your praises but Monday through Saturday, it's about me. I mean, God, you understand, it's, it's a dog-eat-dog -dog world out there. 
right? Like I've got, I've got things to do. I've got a business to run. I've got, I've got success to strive for. I've got people that count on me. I can't be going around and being who you've called me to be in that environment. It just won't work. But James says, no, look at, look at Abraham. He had faith. And that faith transformed him in such a way that when God called him to move, it didn't matter what he was calling him to. Abraham said, it's all yours. Church, I don't know if we truly understand that the work that the Holy Spirit wants to do in us, as we've been saying, right, God's, God's mission, what makes God so gracious to us is that he wants to lead us into the deepest life imaginable. I think what at times we struggle with is in order to get there, it will cause you to offer the most precious things in your life to him for the simple reason that you love him. Abraham, in that moment, said, I love my son, but God, I love you more. And I trust you more. And I surrender to you more. It was a faith that transformed his work. And let me call this out for a second. Is that easy? No. Is it logical? No. But it is transformational. And then the last argument that James talks about is what I'm calling the Rahab argument. And so he... He brings into the life of Rahab, and I love this. I, again, very intentional what he's doing because Abraham and Rahab could not be more different from each other. <laughs> Abraham was a Jew. Rahab was a Gentile. Abraham is known for his righteousness. What is Rahab known for? Her occupation as a prostitute. Abraham was called a friend of God. Rahab belonged to the people that God called his enemy. So on paper, yes, complete opposite. Yet, both of them find their place in the lineage of Jesus. Why? Because that's how God's kingdom works. And remember what James was teaching. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. Show no partiality. Then he launches into these two very different people. So verse 25 says this, In the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. And friends, here's where I think the real challenge comes for us in all this. This is where we see that the kingdom of God is a kingdom of love. The kingdom of God is a kingdom of love. In Abraham, we see evidence of saving faith through his willingness to give up that which is most precious to him. In Rahab, we see 
her endangering her own life for a God that she doesn't even know or understand. Why? Out of her love for others. Because even in that moment, the Spirit was doing a work in here that she felt called to put everything on the line for God's people. To risk it all for God's people. And in a very powerful way, James has just illustrated this inseparable nature of loving God and loving people, of faith and work. And I would say it this way, that faith will always produce a life-changing love for God. The more we know about God, the more we grow in our love for God. Faith should always produce in us a life-changing love for God. Faith will also produce in us a life-structuring love for other people. That, friends, is the true saving nature of faith. The more we learn and believe and accept what God says is true, the more we grow in our love for God and who he is and what he's done, but also the more that that helps us to structure our lives for God's people. To live out a love for his people. So what do we do with this? Because the reality is that this passage is both a warning but also an encouragement. The warning here is against this type of complacency that we've been talking about. Your faith can't just stop with an increasing knowledge of who God is. Your faith through the spirit that equips us has to transform us, that that faith continues to make itself known, to live itself out with how we engage with people, how we love people. And so James says there's a danger here of having a dead faith. There's a danger in holding a strictly intellectual or a strictly emotional faith that doesn't bring about transformation. But church, there is also great encouragement here. That for us, when our hearts come to complete surrender to the person and work of Jesus, when there remains no aspect, no barriers of our lives that we keep from the Holy Spirit, church, the beautiful thing, the hope that we have is that what happens is that the kind of heart, the same kind of love that we see in Jesus lives through us. That in this beautiful dance, we see the Trinity at work in our life. That the Father has called us that the Son has shown his love for us and that the Spirit now begins the work of transforming us into the image of Jesus. That is true faith. And so church, it's my prayer as we continue to walk, as we continue to struggle 
as we continue this inward battle that we all deal with between the old self and the new self. God, it is my prayer that as we strive to be a family of grace, that it all comes back to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 22 when he said, love the Lord your God with all your passion and prayer and intelligence. This is the most important, the first on any list, but there is a second to set alongside of it. Let others, love others as well as you love yourself. These two commandments are pegs. Everything in God's law and the prophets hangs on them. Church, I pray for us that we want to see the very heart of Jesus lived out through us. That we would recognize our pull some of us towards legalism, some of us toward complacency, but that we would recognize the invitation of transformation that the Holy Spirit wants to do in our lives. And that we would continue to put ourselves in a position of complete surrender, of complete submission, and of excited expectation to what God is then going to do. Let's pray. God, as we come to you this morning, God, we confess that this is a struggle. And God, that you know you haven't called us to something that's easy. God, you've called us to something that's so radically different that the only way we could ever get there is because of the work of your spirit. And so, God, I pray for us, God, as the body of Christ, that we would allow your words to be a continuous echo in our minds. That we believe there's one God. That we believe that God is sovereign above all that we believe that that God has anticipated every step in our journey because of his love. God, help us also to remember that as we believe that, may we also believe and be reminded that your spirit wants to take us even deeper. for those beliefs to transform our living, for your spirit to saturate every area of our lives as we get to live for you because of your spirit moving through us. God, help us. Help us to believe. In Jesus' name, amen.